0: highly hodley podcast Renos back with another one baby this week i have an interview for you with josh p twining who is a actually sorry dr josh p twining very important who is a conservation biologist ecologist and muay thai coach and fighter uh, and a good personal friend as well this chat is boom man it was deep we went into everything from Josh's work in ecology, working with giant lizards in Indonesia, uh, talking about martial arts, coaches, the loss of authority and discipline and that master-student relationship, talking about academia, about finding truth, about honesty. We went everywhere at this one, baby. I know you're going to, Jesus, how could you not enjoy it? I had an absolute blast and we will definitely be doing it again, so Without further ado, I hope you enjoy the podcast. Boop. Sweet. Welcome to the show, Joshua P. Twinning.
1: Mahan, Mahan, Mahan. How long have you known me and you can't pronounce my surname?
0: Is it Twining? Y- yeah, exactly, <laughs>
1: mate. No. You son of
0: a bitch. i fucked the intro <laughs> already. God <laughs> damn it. <laughs> I really need to write these things down. Oh my God. Um, well, yeah, this is one of the ones that I've been trying to get you for pretty much since the start, I'd say, to pin you down. And now, thankfully, you're in jail, so I can speak to you. I've caught you finally.
1: Well, I'm mean, yeah, glad an opportunity finally arose. I mean, I wish I wasn't in, in quarantine prison, but, you know, it gives us a chance to have a chat, so.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a good time definitely for ruminating on some stuff. Um, I want, I mean, the impetus for the conversation that I was thinking about was because I found it really interesting, obviously, that you have your PhD in science. You're a man of the wilderness. And then you're also involved in Muay Thai as a coach and as a fighter. Um, And some people might think that those two things are an oxymoron. You can't be a PhD scientist and a Muay Thai
1: fighter. Well, how do you... mm, Yeah, so I I, I think i probably come across similar viewpoints a lot and people can probably see it as a double life but i I see one being pivotal to the other i mean a a lot of Mm -hmm. a lot of my success in my professional field probably comes from confidence and discipline i only have because of my time spent in martial arts and muay thai Mm -hmm. Um, so i really do see Mm -hmm. one as 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 one facilitating the other um and I Mm -hmm. I i think also coming things from a empirical or scientific background changes how you approach things so it probably has a big influence on my coaching style um, and, and how I approach sports and, and fighting and my mentality, those sorts of things all round. Um, so I think they complement each other in unexpected ways.
0: And you think it makes it a bit more rigorous. And did you start doing Muay Thai before zoology, or was the zoology, oh, zoology before? No, mate. If you if, if you'd
1: have asked me when I, when, when, when back when I was. Into Muay Thai myself, so 18, 19. If you told me I was going to be uh, doing my PhD or do a postdoc and go into research, I'd have laughed at you. I I, I was going to, yeah, I didn't really know what I was going to do, but I was certainly into fighting at the time. Um, So, no, my my interest in uh, academia and ecology probably developed slightly later on.
0: (laughs) And was there any relationship between that development and your travel? Going over to Thailand and stuff. I'd seen that you'd gone obviously to a lot of places yeah. with the academia and with. It's, was there a relationship between yeah, those? Yeah.
1: So they actually tied in completely. So I mean, the uh, crystallizing mm-hmm. moment for me when I realised that I loved research was uh, mm-hmm. a research trip at the end of and towards the end of my undergraduate degree. Um, so for my dissertation yeah. project, I ended up spending two months in in a, a small island off off Sulawesi in Indonesia. Um, I spent eight weeks with this. Incredible man called Peter Taylor, who, uh, to paint yeah. the picture, he's sort of like a mix between Crocodile Dundee, um, and, and <laughs> Chuck Norris. Um, he is an <laughs> inspirational man and just the enthusiasm he had and yeah. the knowledge. And I was, we were doing, we were doing, run, doing these crazy surveys. So we were running, uh, pitfall traps. So basically you're, you dig digging huge holes in the ground and we were running some of the largest pitfall traps that have been done in the tropics. So 60 litres, 80 litre buckets. Mm-hmm. So you dig these holes into the ground and you have fencing along them and you come and check them every day. So we had about 120 of these run over about a 20-kilometre circuit and this circuit's through primary rainforest um, and it's, it's in, 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 in Bhutan. It's all it's, uh lime cast stone stuff, so it's really hard work. It's,
0: whereabouts Whereabouts is Bhutan? Uh,
1: so it's just off the so Sulawesi. Is a large island in the shape of a K um, in the middle, middle of the Indonesian Can
0: I, I'm actually having a having a bit of trouble hearing you, Josh. Are you kind of far away from the oh, is this, microphone? Is this yeah. Yeah. I think it's inputting through that, through the computer. I'm oh, sorry, man. Just because it sounds like you're kind of moving away. No, no, no. So no, what happens all the time. Um, so that was where you were doing research in Bhutan. That's in, um, it's on an island off kind of the coast of the Pacific. Yeah. So, so
1: so Indonesia is made up of thousands yeah. of islands. Um, the yeah run down from the bottom of, of mainland Malaysia, Southeast Asia, all the way all the way across to yeah. uh, Australia. And Sulawesi is to the east of that, so it's on the east of the Sunda Shelf. And it's, it's a big island in the shape of a K. And Bhutan is a teeny tiny, tiny island just off the southeast of, of the island of Sulawesi. Um, and, yeah, so for me it was just a uh, – yeah – crystallizing the experience it, it, it inspired me to get into research further I mean I was able to see incredible forms of life you'd never imagined before and interacting them in a way and mm-hmm. meet people and yeah just absolutely fantastic and for, for me it was it was a uh, uh, it was a ch- an opportunity, and, and real. I realized that research wasn't just about crunching numbers. You know, there was this exciting part. This, this bit was like a call to adventure. You know, you were going to these mm-hmm. awesome, highly biodiverse tropical areas that hadn't been explored by many people before, getting to see these wonderful things, but also developing research themes and discovering new things while you're at it um and, and and that first trip to Thailand so my first time when I spent three months there was off the back of that so I got funds to go out there as part of the research project and while I was out that's there, what
0: I was going to ask yeah. how how was it yeah how did you end up there in the first place what was the the inspiration for going to the island
1: uh so yeah so that it was just part of my undergraduate degree so there was an offer during the undergraduate degree mm-hmm. that you could go and do this field course uh and it could, you could yeah. collect data for your dissertation um so so I, I my first trip out there, I did that. And while I was out there, I spent most people flit around projects, but I spent all eight weeks on a single project. and I learned a lot of my basic Indonesian at that point. Um, and then Uh I just stayed out there afterwards and I was invited back as staff the following year and things just developed from there. And each time I went out, I spent a bit of time in Thailand and then a bit of time in other places afterwards. Um, Uh Okay. So you were kind of doing both. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you uh, during my undergrad, again for, for the the the, do you want to go out to Sulawesi, Indonesia? I was sort of like, what the fuck is Sulawesi, Indonesia? But I was like, I'm pretty sure it's close to Thailand, <laughs> though. Um, <laughs> You're like, all right, <laughs> all right. Um, yeah, no, and and again, so those those, those things tied in the, these these two disparate interests geographically tied in quite neatly together, um, and so I and also that underlying
0: adventurous spirit that's really interesting that you say that about exploring the wild but also in a way that's useful for development research and academia so it has that kind of two-pronged and, and, adventure and then sure. sharing it and, and
1: for me it's one of those things that and i never expected either was that the, the You wouldn't believe how physically demanding. I mean, this this twenty kilometers doesn't sound like much, but when you're going through twenty kilometers of of primary rainforest, that is a lot of miles. You're getting up at the crack of dawn and you're going to bed Mm -hmm. probably just just before darkness is reaching you. Um, And you know it's hard. It has that challenge. It requires that mental grit. Um, And so, so there, there was that side of it as well that has always excited me and encouraged me and again isn't something you often see within research streams within biology. Um, no
0: it's very physical isn't it where you're actually out there looking at you know you're studying the species in the wild and dealing with the nature in order to find them so there is that added uh, it's not just sitting in an office where you're you know looking at test tubes for you, 12 hours a day. I mean
1: sure and that, that, that's part of it too and that's the, the bit that comes yeah. later um, and, and that has mm-hmm. that has Uh, enjoyable parts to it as well and and is exciting in its own right Right. but yeah they're very different Mm -hmm. um and it is it is always the 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 pinnacle of of being a biologist or ecologist is certainly the the field work and getting to witness these things firsthand and interact with
0: And what did you learn in the jungle there was there anything that struck you about life and about the environment and i mean that's quite a primal going back very much to you know a world that we're quite exempt from these days. Was there anything that made you reflect on your um your state of being normally? How did did it give you a kind of culture shock or a juxtaposition of what normally goes on?
1: Um I think I must admit those first few trips. The the I probably considered myself to be quite wise in my ruminations. But after spending you know mm-hmm. multiple years out there afterwards, you realise your first thoughts are relatively naive. Um, <laughs> yeah. if even 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 in, in those times where it, yeah. Um, so it's difficult to say. I, I can't say I had a a, a mm-hmm. single moment or crystallisation that I realised mm-hmm. from say that that first field trip out there. Um, for me, it really was just this this ignition, this switch of of, of wonder and amazement. Uh, I mean, man, you've got to think about. Yeah. I grew up in, in Milton Keynes, like a commuter city to London, mm-hmm. uh, and I'd, I'd mm. experienced that. And then after that, I moved to Birmingham. I had never witnessed anything mm-hmm. like a like a virgin jungle before. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't. There's. Yeah. So I, I think for me, it really was that that it, it was a. Uh, yeah. A moment of inspiration realizing I'd never really known what I want mm-hmm. to do with my life, but that trip almost, you know, I probably in the first week I was like, this is what I want to be doing. Um, yeah. and yeah. so that had a really profound effect on mm-hmm. the route I took for the rest of my, my, my career mm. following that and professional life following that.
0: Yeah. That seems like a very pivotal kind of moment. And what did you study when you were there? What, what creatures were you studying?
1: So that first, that first project was, uh, it was so it was reptiles and amphibians. Um, so everything ranging oh, nice. from little colorful skinks all the way up to, uh, big water monitors. So, so your closest relative, oh, the dragon. yeah. And so that, that yeah. that's what I continued down. For so a lot of my work in mm. the tropics was focused on, uh, originally targeted on water monitors as as apex yeah. predators, predators and dominant scavengers. But then developed on that, so it became about uh, vertebrate scavenger communities in general and how land use change mm. can affect not only the species present but ecological functioning of systems. Um, and and mm. investigating how you know. So if if, if you in 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 that scale of change where you're going from primary forest all the way through to say oil palm estate which is your your most commonly growing agricultural land use within these systems is is how does that change not only your persistence of different species but the processes that are really important affect human health so for example removal of carrion is really important for disease dynamics and nutrient recycling yeah um and it also meant you got to go square up and go one-on-one with two, three-meter lizards on the daily, which is always fun. Giant, yeah.
0: I know, I was like, oh, this stuff's all very important, but the giant lizards <laughs> are also pretty sick. Um, I was obsessed with lizards when I was younger. I had, uh, I had snakes, pet snakes oh, yeah? that I had. Um, but I was always fascinated by them. My mom always tells a story one time of when I went missing in the zoo and they couldn't find me anywhere. And then my granddad went and just found me in the reptile house just chilling with all the reptiles being like these dudes are fucking sick man Incredible. <laughs> they're, uh, they're just such a I don't know they're such an alien they for me they're very much the kind of that Jurassic world exactly they hark
1: back to a the, previous age yeah for sure
0: something that's so so ancient about them but um also obviously as you're saying they're quite they're at risk a lot of the time as well so there is that
1: yeah, for sure. And it, well, it depends on species to species, right? So if, you, if you're talking about mm-hmm. your smaller ones, so for example, the skinks we were looking at, we were really interested in two genuses. Uh, we're looking at eutrophus, especially, which are small forest skinks and sphenomorphus as well. So these guys would be mm-hmm. very susceptible to, to, land use change and logging and and, and human activities. But you're bigger animals, so you're generalists, so you're big water monitors. Actually, what's really remarkable about this is how well they do. So you go to oil palm estates. Yeah, yeah. yeah, So so an oil palm estate, you Mm. drive through them. And and, and aesthetically, the first time you drive through an oil palm estate, you can think it looks quite pretty. Because I mean, you're basically Mm. driving through a, a, a landscape that is palm trees on palm trees. And we associate palm trees with Mm -hmm. paradise and beaches. But it's not until you spend a bit of time in the forest and you realize how empty and desolate these places are, you know, you lose that wonder, you lose that. Well, first of all, you lose your your bigger animals and your mammals who are more susceptible to either persecution or just can't survive. But it's animals like your water Mm -hmm. monitors. So you're really tough animals who are really adaptable, that thrive. So all their competitors get, get extirpated on a local scale. So in, in say, all the Palmer states, you get water monitors that are three times the size as you would in natural habitats and they're coming in these crazy densities and you see, so it becomes like an ecological trap. So not only do you have these giant lizards, so you're talking when they'd normally probably get to around 10 kilos in, in forest when they've got yeah. lots of competition, they're getting to maybe mm. twice that weight, they get into these huge, huge lengths and they're covered in scars. So it really becomes this battleground for them because you've got this high abundance yeah. of resources because there's loads of humans there and humans are throwing loads of waste materials on the ground. So they're adapting to these and then they're competing over mm-hmm. them. And so you get what basically is just these battlegrounds for giant dragons. Um, G- giant lizard fight <laughs> yeah, club and for it's, supremacy. And, it's, and it's, it's, it's fascinating in a way. And again, it's one of those things that is really was intriguing and surprising is we expect that as we destroy the natural world, that we'd lose those ecosystem processes. But actually, what we see is as we destroy the natural world and we lose the community, nature adapts, and you get these hyper-abundant mm. large lizards that continue that carrion removal in a way that you wouldn't wouldn't expect.
0: Um, so that's really interesting. But you create, I mean, do you create unnatural competition amongst them, whereby there's going to be side effects because they're, I suppose, they might have different territories and they're not kind of so pitted against one it, another exactly that. And, that, that, and, and that and that's
1: the ecological trap so you get these really male bias yeah. sex ratios and so you've got a lot, a, yeah. a lot more males than females and because water monitors are cannibals mm-hmm. that significantly decreases your survival chance of young um but also when you've yeah. got more males around you've got more fighting so you've got much higher levels of of, of scarring and much higher increased chances of mm-hmm. intraspecific killing, so animals killing each other through competition. Um, but you also
0: man they're cannibals, so they they consume their own young. Do they? Yeah, is yeah, yeah, yeah. competition?
1: I mean, but you have to remember. So most 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 well, not all animals will cannibalize each other, but most, especially yeah. at, at that apex predator level, will commit infanticide. So if you come across young of another animal, yeah. you kill it because you're trying to force the female back into oestrus. Um,
0: That's such a mythological thing that you see in all these ancient societies like King Herod killing all of the youth so they don't usurp them. It's crazy that that's such a feature. of Even hamsters do it. I mean,
1: there's so many things that are completely natural in in nature and natural Mm. systems that we look at abhorrently. And I mean, I think it would probably surprise us how recently as well a lot of these things change in our views, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And I mean, we were talking about this recently ourselves, how... Yeah, yeah, uh, the the impacts of society on worldviews and how we approach things and 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 y- what it means to be human are massive.
0: Um, the, the difference between us and I suppose the primitive animals that we would have come from is really absurd. I mean, we take for granted, I think, our morality a lot of the time as just good manners and something that everybody does, but. When you look at animals, I assume, or even, you know, apes, they have, it's a very different standard.
1: Well, it's it's interesting, right? Because you still get, you get, Mm. you get altruism in wild animals, but, and also you you don't get, you say, you know, that say, I'd never describe us as advanced or or what we came from as primitive. I just think we adapt to our environment, but. I do think it's an mm-hmm. interesting point that you know we often view ourselves as these noble beings of high morality, yep. but we're also some of the most despicable beings and do some of the most atrocious things. Yep. I mean, you, you don't you don't hear about chimpanzees committing genocide. You don't hear about you know all no. sorts of things. well. Actually, they do. They commit.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. There was a thing with who is it? It's not your one Jane Eyre. Uh, Jane, what's her name? Jane Goodall oh, that studied. Jane Goodall has studied silverback our chimpanzees, and she found out that they actually went to war with one another. Oh, uh, no, but
1: there's a big, there's a big difference tribes, between warring and tribe between and, actual
0: yeah, extermination. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, we our capacity for evil is just unbelievable compared to it's our. I think our imaginations give us unparalleled access to how to hurt people, as well as how to help them. So, yeah, I guess we have more potential in that department.
1: It's an interesting thought about imagination, isn't it? But this assumes that other high-end beings don't have... Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, uns- well, it's, it's anthropomorphic yeah. to comment either way, isn't it? Because we can't know, you can't interview... Yeah, this is and, a g-
0: great debate. We've been having a lot of the time about different things. I remember I was telling you about that oct- mm. the octopus teacher one and how its ability to solve problems... Kind of, you could infer that it had some conception of, um, at least the future and things that were going to come to pass. I I think think that was more than instinctive. I think
1: so many, so many animals. Once you think about really think about how mm-hmm. they use their environment I mean cephalopods are special in their own little group because they have a silly amount of neurons for their body size and they are particularly intelligent yeah um, but even if you take even if you take animals who might not assume to be particularly clever so you take small carnivores mm-hmm. of almost any order. Yeah. So, so to take the one that's close to my mm-hmm. heart, and I know very well, you take pine mounds, and you see these are animals yeah. that are highly arboreal. So they live at the tops of trees, and just the way they move around the landscape, right? If for, for you in order for you to be able to successfully even take a squirrel, take, if you, for you to in order to be able to successfully navigate through the tops of trees, you have to be able to perceive yourself, you have to be able to say, no, be able to judge distances for one. You have to be able to imagine yourself and know the limits of your physicality to judge those distances to be able to jump them. And so already you've got mm-hmm. some form of looking for the future. But then you look at food caching in all these animals, and then you've got a question about: mm-hmm. Are these behaviours innate? So are they built in, or does food mm-hmm. caching come from uh, uh, necessity? You know, from, from higher thoughts? Is it because you're mm-hmm. able to think about the future? Is it because you're, you you know winter yeah, is coming and there's going to be less resources, so you're planning for it, or is it just a trigger in your body and it's not conscious at all, and so it's just an inbuilt behaviour? And it's it's these sorts of things that I, yeah. I don't think we can comment on. And there's there's a great book uh, by Franz De Waal called "Are We Smart Enough?" Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. or, or what is it? Are humans intelligent enough to know how smart animals are? And it's 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 this yeah. and It's this beautiful paradox because we always view intelligence through this very human lens. And I don't necessarily think that applies to mm-hmm. a lot of animals. I mean, so many animals have intelligence mm-hmm. beyond anything we can comprehend in terms of spatial intelligence and memory and things like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think about rodents that can remember the locations of thousands of thousands of cached seeds. I lose my keys every bloody day, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: or pigeons with their homing. Yeah, instantly. exactly. <laughs> they can, oh, mm. and I, yeah. It's fascinating you know, where you draw the line between humans. And that really struck me because obviously I've been trying to understand biology for the last while a bit more because I come from a social science background and it's just like, eh, it's all opinion, man. Whatever you want to, it's all just kind of very like loosey goosey. Whereas biology is more, it's quite clearly defined, which is, is very interesting to equate it to human nature and to see how biology affects our psychology. But I guess that's the same argument for animals, isn't it? How much psychology do they have compared to human beings? Well, I guess,
1: and it depends what you mean by psychology, a right? sense of self. Because if, 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 mm. if you're taking a biological psychologist's approach, yeah. you think everything's linked to serotonin and dopamine, and you can take a very reductionist style. Or if you're an yeah. evolutionary psychologist, yeah. you might think it's all about your evolutionary landscapes and planes and surviving in that environment. Um, I think, I mean, all all vertebrates have brains of some kind, right? So there's some sort of thought, there's perception of pain, there's, I mean, if you've ever worked with animals, clearly there's like animals can feel fear, they can feel pain, they can feel relief. There's there's, there's simple emotions that almost all higher animals must be able to feel. Um, Mm -hmm. But beyond that, yeah, I mean, again, and this isn't an area of research that I work in specifically, Um, and I think beyond that I mean there's lots of fascinating stuff at the minute, Um, so I've got a colleague who does a lot of work on personality and how uh,
0: I was just about to say, man, that's yeah, fascinating. So, that, so
1: yeah. personality in animals, and so he does work on cognitive bias. So how your how the upbringing yeah. of an animal can change their optimism or pessimism. So, for example, if you've got if you've got a cow that has been kept in a dark shed for all its life, and then you show it, and it yeah. has, you have a say, you have a treat box, mm-hmm. and you're showing it. Mm -hmm. If it's one color, say it's yellow, they get a treat. And if it's red, they get nothing. And then you show them a blue one. If you've got a cow that's had Mm -hmm. positive life experiences, they're more likely to look in that box and be optimistic about what's going to be in there. Well, if you've had a negative one, they're much more Mm -hmm. likely to be pessimistic. And so we see we see these same effects of life experience on perceptions of the world in animals that we don't think are particularly intelligent.
0: Yeah, they can measure personality in fish. I mean, there's a a weird, I read a bit of affective neuroscience with uh, Yach Pangsep and Kenneth L. Davies, and a lot of their work is derived from animal models of, from fish to primates, doing personality tests on chimpanzees to measure, you know, that some are more aggressive than others, some are more maternal and these kind of characteristics of them really that they're not just one homogenous kind of
1: it's, 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 mass it's There's a lot of things as a community ecologist. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I would look on. Mm-hmm. Well, perhaps in my past, I'd have looked on as a bit of, of, of wishy washy. But I think as you go further down the mm-hmm. route and you see the the methods applied for say quantifying the boldness and it's all quite simple things and can be standardized Mm -hmm. but what that means and if in if you can find a consistent response to a stimuli if you can actually turn that to, to words that we use to describe personality i think becomes Yeah, interesting. I mean, yes, it's not a field of my expertise. But again, yeah, there's a bit of a difficult,
0: because I mean, I know with human personality tests that the effective neuroscience personality scale is a bottom up one. So that's from animal models. Whereas with the Big Five one and those measures, they're linguistic models. So they're done by self reported tests. So obviously, you can't do those with animals. (laughs) So you're kind of. (laughs) You're like, how do you feel about this? (laughs) A lot easier
1: if you could, eh?
0: Yeah. Do you like bananas? 10 out of 10. <laughs> but it, yeah, it's a an interesting I mean, because there's ethical implications obviously for our society and for how it's set up and how we treat animals. It's a big thing nowadays, veganism and far, particularly factory farming. And it comes down to this philosophical argument all the time of are animals conscious enough to be given human rights? Some people say yes, some people say no. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I'd. it's a tricky one. I don't think, I mean, the way I look at it, I would be happy to hunt animals myself and to kill them if I had to. And I look at it as just outsourcing what I do, what I would do anyway. I mean, there's loads of jobs in the modern world that I don't do, that I pay other people to do, like my plumbing. But if I had to do that, I would do it. It's just a differentiation of skills and specialization see, I, but then you get into is
1: it a moral thing see i find i find that i find the arguments for vegetarianism mm-hmm. and veganism i mean you know you know yourself that i don't eat many meat products mm-hmm. um but I, yeah. I find the the sustainability arguments far more compelling than the welfare ones yeah. because they're, they're they're based in entirely quantitative empirical evidence that can't really be argued against yeah. you know i mean i mm-hmm. are uh, feeding on animals is the number one driver of land use change and climate change. Um, that can't mm-hmm. be argued with, While well, is it wrong to mistreat a cow which might have consciousness, has a lot of holes in it, or at least has a lot of unknowns. Um, so although...
0: Yeah, it's a harder argument to make yeah. from a practical perspective.
1: Although I think I do think there is, when you look at the intensification of agriculture we've been witnessing since the end of the Second World War, I do think those I mean, it, it's easy to see why they become such prominent arguments because the way we treat sheep and cows and pigs is 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 rather horrendous. Yeah. Um, but I'm like yourself, yeah. and I spent a lot of my time. So again, <laughs> it's one of the it was one of the very defining experiences for me was going on hunting trips uh, in in both in Sulawesi and in Borneo. I'm um, hunting mm-hmm. in a very traditional manner, um, and what's So I, I always felt the same way. Uh, so I always thought if, if I should, if I can eat anything, I should be able to kill it myself. I should be able to hunt it myself. I think the first,
0: yeah, that seems the more ethical or more responsible way. And if you were, for me, it was born
1: out of practicality at first. So I mean, we were there was there was a time when uh, I was working in the Kalabakan in Borneo, and it was during the rainy season, and all the logging roads that we used to access the nearest town a few hours away got washed away. All the bridges got broken down, so we had no way of getting food. So it was either eat white rice and nothing but white rice, or find things to eat um and you find out pretty quickly that the shrews and rats and squirrels don't taste so bad um in that circumstance um so <laughs> then and then but yeah. then you got from there and it, again it was one of the interesting th- things for me was i'd never really understood hunting i never really understood why you'd want to kill an animal um but then going on trips with with local around kampung, so so, so guys who make their livings in the forest and hunting with dog and badruk which is traditional spear, similar to a machete tied to a stick and there is some innate connection and for me it's the exact same feeling when fighting there's there's a, a stillness a clearness a mental clarity there's something inbuilt in us that when you're doing these activities feels right makes sense and is, is, yes. yeah, I, I, I cannot articulate it properly. But it,
0: I was about to touch on that. I, I saw the parallel coming between the two of those things because I was the exact same that I never would have. I, I mean, I love animals. I've always loved animals and I've always had uh, been around animals. And the thought when I was younger of killing animals, like my dad would bring home a big dead deer and, you know, cut it up and eat it for dinner and everything it it didn't make sense to me in the sense that, you know, we have food, why would you do that? But then as I got a bit older, I started to understand the, the first of all, that they were culling deer, so they were going to destroy the environment. So they had to be, that there was actually a responsibility to it, to manage it um, on a certain level. But also that there's a, a strange respect in the whole thing if you do it properly. Like my dad always harkened back to the Native Americans that you use every bit of the deer and you pay all your respect to it. And that it's not, you're not doing it lightly. You're not just going out
1: to just, you know, have a laugh and start whacking them. For sure. And it was, it was one of the things that, that, that especially in in Saba Sababonia ideas that really developed for me was so a lot of the time when you're working with your local guides out there the the way they know the forest so well is that for a lot of their life they'll have been hunters but you see you see these people who can read a forest in a way that you could spend your life trying to learn how to do and be unable to because they've been doing it since they were tiny they've been living off the forest they connected to the landscape in a way that our ancestors would have been thousands of years ago um and it's 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 that just intense knowledge and respect and understanding, and yet you see time and time again. And it's one of the things that really always used to get my back up would be rest Western researchers telling these people that, for example, they shouldn't be hunting. You shouldn't be going out and looking for Tupai, which is a above ground sort of shrew, or, or kusu, which are these yeah. small And these are the mainstays. And you're, you're talking to people who, who especially the Sabahans, or, or, or we worked in Danarana for a bit. You've got these people who have lived in these forests for generations and generations, and they are the only remaining pr- tropical primary forest in the world. And yet we have the arrogance to turn up and tell them that they need to change their behaviours. And it's like, well, look where we came from. Look what we've been doing for thousands of years. We already fucked our country <laughs> up and yet we think we can turn up here where these people have been living in see some sort of sustainable manner with the world um, and, and push views. Exactly. In. And that, I mean,
0: the hubris of it always strikes me where you kind of have to go, I mean, a lot of the times with the veganism argument and stuff, it's like, it's unethical. But then you're also saying that every human being that ever lived, except for a select group of people that have kind of evolved or for religious
1: reasons, are unethical. But, but vegan, and it's kind of where we yeah, vegan, start. Veganism is a position of privilege, right? You, you can only be a vegan you cannot, if you're Western yeah. middle class. You can't you can't be a, yeah. a vegan if you're 99% of the world population. And so although, although I think it's a... Yeah. Uh, I don't disagree that being, say, no. living a vegan life is probably the most highly moral approach is just not available to most people and also the, I think it falls down as yeah. well when you get people claiming that veganism is the natural way and that humans were adapted to eat plants and all that shit and it's like well if you look at any of our post- <laughs> it becomes
0: yeah. kind of a weird pseudoscience but it's, and
1: it's mad right because it just it just ignores the facts it ignores the the main theories for why humans develop big brains and socializations and bipedalism I mean it's called the hunting hypothesis the yeah. the, the, the meaning yeah. behind it is relatively simple um mm-hmm. yeah no so and it's it, again it's one of those things that i think is 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 difficult and with almost everything i, I find myself living in those shades of gray i find i find that
0: yeah there's well, there's an interesting parallel there i'd like to jump on that before we go rushing past which is the fighting and the hunting and that feeling of being in the right place because fighting is something obviously in modern society that is also looked at as sort of barbaric. And I mean, it's more acceptable nowadays, but also there's a lot of people that would be like, that's, you know, just, you're just a bunch of thugs or you're, you know, violent miscreants that are... But actually there's something very noble about it and something that requires courage and discipline and attention and all of these things that can be missing.
1: And there's, there's so many things. So, so I often think the people who judge fighting and it's one of the things that always clicked with me as well is you see the people who are violent and in life are going out and starting fights they're not fighters Mm -hmm. people who can fight and dedicate themselves to the art and the discipline they they they, you know a lot of those people are some of the sweetest nicest people you've ever met and the most kind (laughs) tempered. yeah um but i do do, again i i think there's a there's a bit of the Kruger Dunning hypothesis going on there, where the mm-hmm. less you know, the more you think you know about something. Um, and it's one of those yeah. things about fighting is, I think, from the outside, from the uninitiated, of sure, it can look barbaric, it can look scary, it can look like it's about egos. But it's also a place mm-hmm. where it's about self improvement and mm-hmm. discipline and dedication and learning to fall down and stand up again, but also about camaraderie and learning from people around you. And yeah, Yeah. and and for me, it was one of the things I found most surprising was the peace of mind it gave me, I've always got a mind that is Mm -hmm. is constantly chattering. But one of the times when my mind's actually quiet is when I'm in a ring, Mm -hmm. when I'm sparring, when there's something going on, and my my mind needs to shut up. And it's that peace of mind, that I think the only two places I've ever found it are in a ring and out hunting. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's in the, mm. i can 't explain why that is or for what reason, but mm. it 's something in my mind that is must be biologically coded in us is 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 you know yeah. those the, needs for survival. in modern day society we never have to struggle for anything right you know you want food, you yeah. call up a takeaway you go to a supermarket everything there's prepackaged for you we don 't struggle anymore mm-hmm. and yet I think in mm-hmm. the struggle and in in, in, in in having to work hard for something and being in danger is where human beings excel, it's where we develop, it's where we build character. But it's also often for me where I've been the most happy. And it's, it's that weird counter, I don't know, I don't know.
0: It's a very strange moment. I, I remember that exact because uh, when I boxed when I was younger, it was always a bit mysterious to me. I didn't really understand fully you know, it was something that it was kind of like an after-school activity. I knew I had to do martial arts. I knew I had to fight and that it was part of something that I had to learn, but I didn't know what it was that I was learning really. It was only later when I went back and did it again, that I kind of understood what you're talking about, that biological, that you feel like you're in the right place. You know, you don't have that rational monkey mind that's just harassing you. It's very, I suppose people would describe it as a flow state, but it's, it feels like a real connection with yourself and even the person you're fighting. I mean, inspiring and stuff like that. There is, you all suffer together and beat each other up, but there is a camaraderie because of that, because of the, For sure. the, but I, the lengths you you'll I, go. I think
1: beyond the, the, the flow state and those feelings as well and camaraderie build is that, mm-hmm. I think in different ways, a lot of people try and escape the confines of modern society. And so whether that's through alcohol or drugs or whatever the hell it is, but I think both fighting and hunting allow you to do that through a different means. And it's that completely natural means of endorphin production. You're doing an activity that floods your body with hormones that make you feel incredible. And that that mm-hmm. positivity you know, i mean, we talk about it all the time. The, the days when you're most productive and you're feeling your best are the days when you've had a training session in the morning. Um, and and I think it can last for a long time. It's one of the one of the things I'm struggling with in this in this goddamn hotel prison. Is there's there's none of <laughs> yeah. that there's, there's, there's none of that easy access to natural chemical highs that to are the inbuilt into us. You know, they they're they're, mm-hmm. they're meant to be there as a stimulus to undertake these activities that are difficult, right? You know, there's a, there's a inbuilt, encoded hormonal reward system for undertaking these activities that are otherwise difficult. Um, mm-hmm. cause otherwise no one would fucking do them, would they? If you're,
0: if you're sitting yeah, there. I mean, if it, well, that's the thing. If it's laissez faire and you can do whatever you want, it's like, oh yeah, I'll sit on the couch and eat fucking pizza all day. <laughs> but it, yeah, that, what you're talking about, I talk to people all the time on the podcast about this, people that train, that do endurance sports or martial arts, And um, about all the bad things you do to yourself when you can't get that release from training or from hunting or from an activity like that, where you're completely focused on that, there's no self-consciousness going on and how you can end up drinking, doing drugs. You know, people will do crazy shit to try and get that feeling in their lives. All of the time, and how this is a natural way of actually creating a practice of it.
1: But isn't isn't
0: it? And I feel like but
1: is, isn't it crazy as well? Because we, we talk about we we, we were mm-hmm. talking about how you know often a lot of people in society would look down on say. Fighting, martial arts, that sort mm. of thing is barbaric. And yet, drinking yeah. and, and, and certain drugs are entirely acceptable. They're a normal part of daily life. Yeah. And yet, one is mm. a completely healthy and beneficial release, and the other is almost entirely mm. self destructive. And yet, it's the self destructive one that isn't completely normalized. Um, yeah, yeah that's the standard. Yeah, it's, it's mad.
0: Um, yeah, it doesn't, we don't, we don't have a very good answer to that problem of self-consciousness because a a lot of people suffer these days that I've spoken with, I suppose, with that constant monkey mind thinking all of the time and trying to escape themselves. When when you say monkey mind. You don't just feel okay. So you're kind of internal monologue that you have that frenetic activity because we have all this energy. I mean, we're these physical beings with energy and working for eight hours at a desk isn't going to fix that. It's probably going to turn the volume up. So it needs this counterbalance in the natural world. You see that a lot with rewilding and things like that. But I think it's the medicine that kind of fixes the modern sickness properly, rather than just getting out of your head every Friday and Saturday to escape the, the excess energy that you've built up all during the week. Is that something that you think about?
1: Yeah, for sure, and I, I think I think, and especially when I was younger, I went. I'd, I'd always do things by extremes, and so I was someone who who mm-hmm. certainly enjoyed those Friday and Saturday and back in the day Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, yeah. Thursday, Friday night releases. Saturday, yeah. But it wasn't until, and I, I, yeah, and I, mm-hmm. I think it can be difficult to see different routes and different paths and, and, and find enjoyment in other aspects. But for, for me, I think there's two things there. One is, one is mm-hmm. the, well, what we just discussed, you know, martial arts can provide a natural alternative to that. But two, I think is, is mm-hmm. if you're always searching for that Friday night and that escape, then mm-hmm. there's probably something missing. And so, I mean, I think, I think even when you grind, no matter what your job is, the important thing is to be able to find meaning in it, right? There has to be meaning in your struggle. Otherwise you're going to not be happy about your situation and look for releases in self-destructive manners. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's one of the things that that ever since I've gone down this route, I've been relatively grateful for is I get mm-hmm. immense meaning from the work I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I think that helps, but at the same time, it doesn't, it doesn't stop that nagging monkey mind as you call it and, self doubt, yep. but again, that just comes from discipline and and train and talking to yourself and learning about self talk and, and and how you address yourself and the stories you tell yourself, right? Um
0: exactly. And the outlets for that energy. I mean something that popped into my head there when you, you said the word release was the release of from self consciousness is a kind of freedom. So it's for me I I was always searching for that release in some way to feel free, but I did it in ways that created me to be dependent on them. So martial arts, I think, is a way that frees you from those constraints, but doesn't keep you dependent on something else, but, like a substance. But it's,
1: it's addictive in its own way, right? You're dependent on it. You're just you're just mm-hmm. dependent on, on an activity as opposed to a substance. Yeah. Um, but, it's, but, yeah it, but that's, it, I suppose, productive. Yeah, exactly that. And I think it's one of those, those things with, and I, I still find it today, uh, and you, you know me, I, mm-hmm. I, I don't drink often, but... but When we go out, Mm -hmm. I'll enjoy a fair few beers, and it's that it's those following days. And I can't believe when I look back on behaviours in the past, I'm like, "How did you not realize Because it's it's this horrible positive feedback loop, right? Because if you you Mm -hmm. you you you, if you're using addictive pathways because you feel bad, then you're going to feel even worse the next day and have to dive down further into that route Um, and yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I I think particularly as a young guy, it was so important because you have so much energy. I mean, not that young women don't have energy, but I feel like young dudes' energy can just turn so destructive, especially if you're hanging out with a load of knucklehead friends and you're all just getting off your ass all the time. You're going to be like, sooner or later, you're going to get in trouble. Um, And for me, the dojo or martial arts was always the place, it was like church or something. You know, the way people would go to church on a Sunday and they'd have to pretend to be all holy and be like, oh yeah, I've you know, I've been a good boy. Martial arts was something that always kept me accountable somewhere for my behavior. And it's one of the things
1: I find interesting is how early in life you clearly found martial arts. You even said, I knew I had to Mm. fight when you were younger, but you didn't really comprehend it till you were older. And I never really came across, you know, I did a bit of karate and a bit of Aikido in my younger years, Mm -hmm. but never anything with with, uh, dedication or engagement that came to me later on um and, and so, so yeah well i mean
0: i was kind of the same way obviously because my dad was really into martial arts and he's got like he's a fifth dan in the ninjitsu and in karate and in i think well he's fought in thai boxing and done kick so he was always very you know very into martial arts. it was a big topic in my house all the time and yeah, yeah, yeah. um, so i knew i had to box but i didn't understand it the way i understand it now it was just it was kind of like gaa or something or a sport that you had to do but then there was this added element of self protection, and you know, you got to be tough or else you're going to be, people are going to pick on you. And at the time, I thought that was kind of bullshit. But as I've gotten older, I saw how much that insulated me, like where friends would have been picked on or would have gotten more shit. And just because I did boxing, whether or not I was any good at it, uh, people would be like, oh no, maybe I won't pick on him. Maybe I'll give but him. But it's not even, you know, just in case.
1: It's, it, it's, it's one of the things I think is, is, is. So so imperative, and it's that change you see. And it's not it's not the fact someone who boxes or or does any sort of martial arts knows how to fight and is tough. Yeah. It's that through doing those activities, you build build this confidence, and you don't even realize it. Exactly. But the way you stand and the way you're perceived and the way you interact with people changes. And so, it, it, like as you say, I, it wouldn't matter if you were a great boxer or not a great boxer. But the fact that you you've trained in this and you've worked hard will change how you manifest yourself. Within social situations, and I think that's very easily perceived by people. And it's one of these things that I, I think think martial arts has been so pivotal for me. I mean, I'm, I'm I've got a lot of my confidence comes from experiences, mm. those first times in the ring where I thought I was going to piss my pants walking into the ring. You know, it was it was. It's, <laughs> yeah. it, then it comes to give you know a talk to a few hundred people now, and I'm not worried about it at all because what is it? You know, it's it's yeah. I I I I don't think. I could ever oversell the importance or the effect that training has had and the benefits of it has had on almost all aspects of my life.
0: Yeah, I I struggle to think of anything else in my life that has had as single net positive effect as martial arts. Even the education, college and stuff was important, but it didn't instill values in me the way martial arts did. There was, I haven't encountered anything else that has been able to do that on such a, maybe because it's so physical and there's no hiding from it. You- I mean you have to do it but, when you're there so
1: you kind of it's, it's also that fact it, showed, yeah, it shows shows you right in, in modern day society you're rewarded for everything you're protected from everything we want to wrap everybody yeah. in cotton wool but when, when, when you're training yeah. in a martial arts it's you're, you're going to fail things are going to go wrong yeah. you're not going to be able to do stuff oh, yeah. and you know what you're going to brush yourself down you're going to stand up again and you're going to try again and I think it's, yeah. it's that learning yeah. that failure is part mm. of the route. failure isn't the end result mm-hmm. failing is the pathway yeah. to success and i i think that is so so important it's such a you can't instill these lessons in people by verbally teaching them it's something that people have to physically yeah. do and go through to have built into them and i think it's a lot it's one of those exactly things exactly that yeah i don't i don't, Sorry, I don't like, think lots of people probably consciously know it or or, or want to articulate it. i mm. think it just becomes like this inbuilt part of you um mm-hmm. yeah it, it's
0: I always noticed that in the ninjutsu because my dad and his kind of crew, like I would have gone training with them when I was like a kid and I would have been like two or three, but I would have been watching them training. And they trained in the bottom of a nightclub mm-hmm. on the dance floor in the nightclub. <laughs> in this, uh, like, and they were just always wearing all these black suits and beating each other up. And there was a real, commie- it was almost like a secret society or something of these dudes. And they it was like they had this tradition and they do the stances and they'd there was an attitude to the whole thing and they all got that and my dad in in their own lives they've all applied it whether from martial arts to their jobs to their families it's given them that push and the drive and the will not to give up when things get tough but that all came from that kind of small traditional group of just
1: people training yeah and I, it, um, yeah it's, it's one of the things that is always I've never quite been able to comprehend about fighting is that some of my mm. oldest friends, some of the people I'll probably be closest with for the longest are people who I probably don't have that much in common with in personality, but they were back in the mm-hmm. day when I was fighting, you know, we were in the trenches together day in, day out. And it's, it's, yeah, it's if yeah. we'd probably met in under any conditions, we wouldn't have been such close friends. Um, but it's, it's it, different backgrounds, yeah.
0: different cultures, yeah, it's,
1: it, but well, that's and that's a nice thing about it, isn't it? It wipes away all that shit. None of that matters when 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 when, yep. when you're in a ring and, and f- fighting. It doesn't matter where you came from, what you yeah. look like, how much money you have. It's
0: uh, 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 yeah. exactly. It's can you fight yeah. or can you not? Are you gonna run away? Or are you gonna not go even that? But blood, forward? sweat, and
1: tears, baby. How many <laughs> are you have <able> to give? <laughs>
0: man i remember like when i started boxing i was everybody else they were all travelers i was the only like settled one there and they used to bully me because i lived in a house (laughs) so they (laughs) they used to call me a buffer which is somebody that lives in a house and i was like i thought everybody lived in houses i didn't get that there was this whole like people but then through the boxing and us sparring each other then we became really good friends and there was no difference between us once you'd get in the ring and throw hands, yeah, it, and that was yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. You, they, then you were just the same. It's pure equality by fucking violence. <laughs> yes,
1: yeah. I, yeah, I, I, I love it. Man. Similar experiences in Birmingham. So when I first would have started training in Birmingham, I'd have been trained at the university, but then you go down to the mm-hmm. the Reddit Stream and the Shoreditch Stream in in, in Birmingham town centre, mm-hmm. and you're you're mixing with different individuals because they're not students. But you know, at first I'd always look down the students, but then as soon as you actually trained yeah. with them that all melts away so quickly um, and yeah, yeah 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 differences are really that deep. requires it
0: it certainly yeah it gives you a fabulous i think that's where that confidence comes from as well that you can kind of come in as a beginner who doesn't have any skills and work your way up to be part of the main crew or part of the you know the real hardcores and it it's part of a journey that's it really shapes your your sense of identity. When was your first fight in Birmingham, and then Thailand after?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so mm-hmm. lots of fights in Birmingham first. Well, many before I went to yeah. Thailand. I only ever had one in Thailand, and my knee was already wrecked at the time.
0: Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And how? And were, did you come into it intending to fight, or was that just something that just happened when you were there?
1: Oh, good question. Um, no, I oh, yeah. I don't think, I don't think, I, I think at first I just wanted to, I think motivations for first of all starting would have been realizing the limited applications of Aikido in actual fighting and wanting to know how to protect mm-hmm. myself or handle myself. <laughs> yeah. But as soon as, but that quickly yeah. changed as soon as I actually became dedicated into the training. Um, and, you know, once mm-hmm. you've had your, your first few proper spars, then I think the motivation yeah. for fighting came out of that. Um, but I've always been, I've been, for, mm-hmm. for almost all of my Thai boxing career, I've been followed by injuries and handled them very stupidly and poorly. Um, mm-hmm. And so that is, that is limited what I've been able to do. Um, but but I've, I've, I've often tried to ignore it and push through it in, in in a way that only a immature young man can that believes he's invincible. <laughs> Ah, that's that's
0: strange. I've never done that before so um, <laughs> literally from from my waist down at the moment, my legs are like purple, but um, yeah, there's a weird thing I mean that's the other aspect of fighting, I suppose the punishment of it, and there is a real shelf life like my friends I know that are professional fighters and stuff it's a a very difficult life to be doing it regularly and something that has to be calibrated very carefully because the injuries you can get are Muay Thai mean, is more to the body, I think, but boxing your brain. And
1: yeah, it's, it's one of the things I never considered if I'm honest, until I was coaching was the, yeah. was the toll that yeah. fighting has on your body. And yeah. when, when I was, yeah. when I was doing this myself and, in Tha- and like, especially at times in Thailand, I was like, well, you know, what, what do we complain about in the yeah. West? We have one fight every few months and we mope about it and yeah. feel sore afterwards. And you got, you've yeah. got lads there fighting every single week without fail and Mm. it's 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 a different world i think what the things the body can handle are absolutely incredible but as you say there's a shelf life and the more often you go to thailand and what your average age of your fighter is extremely young your fighting career is probably over for most except the best of the best it's probably over by the time you're 21 yeah um and as a thai boy who's been in the gym since he was five or been fighting since he was just a little bit older you've Mm. probably got hundreds of fights already um that's interesting so they tend to get them in young and then they finish
0: and they're younger as well, because I, I think a lot of the damage probably comes from going. I, yeah, I wonder. Do you think it's the different training techniques that they employ? Are are they fucked after as well? Oh no, so, I mean, I mean I so really I think know. I think this
1: is why. Well, uh, I think no matter what training technique you apply, there's only so long your body can go through competing <laughs> yeah. at such an intense level. Um, but I do yeah. think I do think it's one of probably the benefits of Western approaches to training is the. Mm-hmm the normality of physiotherapy and stretching and mm-hmm. weight training and the benefits that has for injury prevention, which you don't see, you know, you know, and it's mm-hmm. you, you don't see it in, well, you're seeing it more and more now, but especially back when I was trained. So back when mm-hmm. I first trained in Bangkok, you know, it was, yeah. you, you, you did your, every single day your you same exercises: your seven kilometer run, your 500 sit-ups your 300 press-ups your 100 pull-ups uh, every day oh, nice. and you know there wasn't <laughs> i remember so I, I split i split the lining of my shin bone uh hairline oh, fracture wow. uh when i was there and Pimu's approach was just like mm. kick the heavy bag until it's better. and it was like that is not the wisest <laughs> and it's it's, but, <laughs> <You're> like, <but laughs> it's it's just a different mentality right it's like it's like so i so I i've been yeah. poisoning once and i uh I, I I met mm. one of my all-time heroes and I shit myself in front of him. Yeah. Um, and and <laughs> p- again, Pimu's approach to the, me having food poisoning was don't eat or drink anything. And I was like, that is hundred yeah. percent the wrong approach to food poisoning. Um, <laughs> I might die yeah. if I do um, this. But, again, but so I, I think there are d- so definitely certain things <laughs> that are better, but the mentality and the belief, so that 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 belief, one in your teacher, that comes from training in a traditional yeah. way, but also mm. the, the mentality it gives you, I mean, is is absolutely yeah. next level. And I I do think there is a, a huge benefit to training in such a manner, even if it's just for a short period of time, because um, yeah. it shows you what your body can do. You know, I remember I remember my first week there, the the I thought like I was like had no understanding of how my body was going to go on. But your your body adapts and, you know, it got easier and easier as time went on. And so you still have low days, but it wasn't like, I mean, by the fifth day, I thought my body was falling apart. I was trying to do my seven kilometer run and my shins felt like they were going to explode because I had shin splints. And I, <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: but then you learn, I suppose, what you can do. But well, we touched on a couple of things there that are really interesting, that kind of that old school attitude that is just like, put yourself on the fire and don't stop and keep going. Because that was always like in boxing like when we would be fighting and stuff when I was younger, it was always just like, you know, whatever weight, it doesn't really matter. They'll just throw you in. It's like, oh yeah, yeah. he's got a couple of fights. He's got a couple of fights. Jump in there. And like, you're only kids and you don't really, the attitude was always, oh yeah, you'll like toughen up your head if you get punched in the head loads. (laughs) And it's just not the way it works. I think that's changing a bit, but it's a, yeah. Do you think there's a conflict between that attitude and then maybe the more, um, would you say so, conservative are so it, concerned? I think, I think it attitude. must
1: vary from sport to sport, right? Uh, and I, I think I think in, yeah. in Muay Thai, especially for the younger ones, you see when they fight, especially because the score and punches are mainly kicks, you are mainly dealing with kicks to the body. Yeah. And I imagine that has far less implications in the long term than constantly taking those blows <laughs> to the head. Your brain. Um, but again, I, yeah. I, I do think it's difficult, right? And there's big ethical questions about what age mm. people should be fighting at and should be undertaking yeah. these sports and i certainly don't know mm-hmm. the answers there um i wish i wish i'd trained yeah. from a younger age if anything um mm-hmm. but at the yeah. same time i probably have even less knees than the no knees i have now they just just too stumps
0: said the bottom. but it is yeah it's really interesting and You were saying the trust in your trainer because I think that is that's the cornerstone of it, really. Because when you're going to go into those situations where you know you're being pushed beyond your limits, you have to trust that the person that's training you has your best interests at heart. And I think with some trainers, like really old school ones that are a bit mental, that can be confused. And nowadays, we just don't trust teachers. You know, there isn't like in college; it's not like you're not an apprentice to a master but, you're uh, just yeah, a rela- yes
1: then that's exactly it isn't it? our relationship has changed and it's true whether it's in martial yeah. arts or it's in education we're now we're now yeah. students and our customers buying a product they're no longer yeah. people it's learning from because they, they they want to improve all that as you said that master apprentice is a lovely analogy for it and it's one of the things mm. in 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 wpt so for my first month him who would ask me every day mm-hmm. josh what is the most important thing to a fighter? And he wouldn't tell me the answer, and I'd guess, mm-hmm. and I'd guess, you know, footwork, a yeah. shin guard, a good knee, uh, what, like, and, I get, and, I, <laughs> and I got it wrong for like a month. And in the end, he told me, I was never mm-hmm. going to guess it. And his answer to the best fighter, he said, there was two things. One was belief in yourself, and the other was belief in your teacher. Mm-hmm. Those, they're the two number yes. one things. And it was like that, again, was a crystallizing moment. It doesn't matter if you're the strongest fighter, the biggest man. It doesn't matter if you're the fittest or you've got the most technical. Mm. But that ability to, one, believe in yourself, but then when your body and your brain can't mm. take you anymore, to listen and be able to trust in the word and guidance of that person in your corner. Mm. Uh, and when you're mm-hmm. eating elbows, and all you can hear is forward, forward. That can be very <laughs> difficult. And it has to be built in. <laughs> It has
0: to be, yeah, you have to be like, all right, I'm going to listen to this guy. <laughs> yeah, Hard time to do any listening, I imagine. But um, with that, yeah, we've come to distrust the teacher-student dynamic. I think we have, there is obviously, there's been so many cases of people abusing that relationship, which are probably in the minority, to be fair, but it has been very, you know, front and center of news, that it's almost safer to have this customer service oh, relationship
1: bull- from bullshit, like a man. legal aspect. Or maybe from a legal aspect, but yeah. in, I mean, in terms of character mm. development, one of the most important yeah. things to me, yeah. both in my personal and professional life has been mm. finding mentors who I can trust. And I really do think that is, is yeah. if you want to grow as a person or if you want to grow your career, finding people more senior than you who are willing mm-hmm. to mentor you, share their knowledge, share their skills, and give advice is mm-hmm. so, so important. And it's one of the things that yeah. I. I always i've been so so lucky in life with having mentors both within muay thai and martial arts and within ecology and it's one of those yeah. things that i want to make sure that i give back and i can be a good mentor to people in the future Because mm. i think that 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 relationship is so goddamn special and you see it less and less yep. in the modern world because it has become this commodity mm. and it doesn't you, It removes yep. this personal aspect this aspect of choice where yep. people choose who they're going to mentor and develop um mm. uh, yeah
0: well that's it yeah there's that's i I mean i'm not defending that customer service attitude at all to be honest I think it's an absolute tragedy that we've lost that because also as a student you don't know everything the reason you need a teacher and you need a mentor is because your knowledge is insufficient to get you where you need to go so the teacher is the person is the gateway to that person that you could be and they're kind of, so that relationship is as you said everything it's so important but with this distrust, I think it makes people less likely to enter it honestly or to do it as a vocation
1: like it should but it, be. But you also can't, with, with the commodification, it's like the, the, the teacher mm. is no longer in charge. The mentor is no longer the end line. It's, it's the customer. responsibility, exactly. And, it, and it doesn't make sense because you have... It doesn't work. And, and also, once mm. once you're a customer buying for something, then the teacher no longer, their number one goal isn't to, improve you or help you develop is to make you feel Mm -hmm. temporarily satisfied they want you as as a customer you want to be happy in the moment but realistically to learn and develop you have to struggle in order to improve and it's often yeah. it's often someone who's going to be harsh who's not going to spoon feed you things or that she isn't going to spoon yeah. feed you things and they're going to yeah. make you struggle and make you learn things on your own or, or, or put you down or criticize you and give you critical feedback in stuff that mm-hmm. you don't want to hear you know it's, it's like that thing you know yeah. the the a good friend isn't someone who always agrees with you a good friend is someone who's willing to tell you when you're wrong um, and I think I think yep. yeah, I think that removal of that actual honesty and personal relationships, but also the power from that teacher mentor stance, mm. cripples not only education and professors and lecturers but people 's character development and professional development in all sorts of fields.
0: That's very interesting segue. I mean, that this is an area that we can jump from the martial arts domain <laughs> back to the academic one because, um, but I, that's what I see is if you can opt out of it at any time, it's not really a path of discipline. If you can say when you leave your comfort zone, oh no, I don't want to do it anymore. You're not really learning. You're not really being taught anything. You're just kind of going as far as you usually go and then stopping. Uh-huh. And yeah. with a service relationship, you can decide that. Whereas in a proper relationship you, the teacher tells but, you what to do. But even
1: worse than deciding that, you're actually incentivizing mm. the provider to make things easy enough that you never yeah. have to struggle. So uh, yes. I, I, I speak to more more, more senior yeah. colleagues of mine, and it's one of those things is you mm. see that the courses that get rated really well are the courses that require the least work. Mm. But So your students are probably oh. learning the least amount. But then yeah. because nowadays part of your ref assessment, so your, your career progress is based on student mm. reviews, people are incentivized to make course is easier and so people are learning less and less and so with with universities and institutions becoming businesses you're removing that key part of education which is actually learning Mm. people tough stuff and demanding the highest level of dedication and work from them and also that some people aren't going to be able to achieve. Some people aren't going to be able to succeed. And I think that is, again, an important thing that we lose more and more in modern day society. We want everyone to to be able to win. You want everyone to be able to get your participatory medal. But I think you have to be able to grade things in a way, or there has to be benefits for the people who are willing to work the hardest or go the furthest, no matter what that's in.
0: It's a philosophical problem, really, isn't it? Where you have this, if you want everybody to be winners, you can't have honest competition it, because in honest competition, people will come out with different results. Also you, you
1: can't or in actual, you can't. You can't full will stop right as soon as you want everyone to be winners. Mm. You can't have a winner. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't exist.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: you've already. Yeah, it's already gone. And I, I'm not necessarily <laughs> saying that there should be there should be winners and there should be losers, mm. but I do think that yeah. there do think that by saying that everyone should win, that we say that there's something wrong with failure. And I don't think there's yeah. anything wrong with not being able to do something or getting something wrong or making a mistake or, or completely bungling something. Because you know what? Lots lots mm. of the times you do that, it will feel... Oh, 100 Yeah, you know exactly yourself. It, it, <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, where the development Habitual comes from. From. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: But that's a lot of it is, and you find that with teachers and stuff in martial arts, that there is always this understanding of, you know, there's an unknown quantity always, and you can show up honestly and then unexpected things happen. But it's really what you do with that, whether you keep going and you keep learning. It it is that attitude that you have to develop, that you can't just pack it in when it gets tough and failure isn't failure. But if I guess in the, the relationship where it's just, Paying for a service, there, there isn't that attitude. You don't have to learn those things. You're paying to be taught, and then you
1: leave, but it, and that's it. And it's it. wild, right? Because in, in that, in that, paying for that service, you, you're not only changing the relationship, but you're completely removing that need for respect. And I think it's one of the things that within martial arts Um, maintains right you still have a certain level of respect but if you think about education Mm. systems the level of if you go to Asia and if someone says that you see the respect that are given to teachers all teachers you know teachers are viewed Mm. with the highest they're they're up there with doctors and then you come to the western world and what we've got a saying if you can't do you teach and it's like that. That is crazy. Yeah. We have we've literally got oh, colloquialisms that deride one of the most important mm. professions in the world. And it, yeah, it's, yeah, it's it's so inbuilt in us. I think nowadays to not to not have that respect of teachers that that, that they deserve, and I don't mean that just purely from
0: that's fascinating. I'm so interested in the worldview that underlies that because I totally know what you're saying of the disrespect of teachers, and but also the disrespect of. Is it just the disrespect of elders in general? Is it a, that we have this it, rampant individualism that makes us think that we know everything and that we're the arbiters of what we should be taught and what we should, is it just hubris in the West? Or is it a, you know, I suppose the upside to it is that if you have a shitty teacher, you aren't subservient to them. You you can get out of it. That would be the positive of angle, course. I, I mean- suppose. If it is an abusive relationship, you're not obliged to stay in it, but you also lose the disciplined relationship.
1: Oh, it's, it's interesting to flip it on its head like that, isn't it? And and, and, and mm. pick apart the other side and the negative sides of, of the, yeah. the thing I would view as the more mm. positive setup. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. <sighs>
0: But I don't think you can throw the baby out with the bathwater because I've heard this. I mean, there's people in the the ninjitsu club. It's been very interesting for a long time because my dad's like pure old school train and hardcore 100%. And we've kind of had this dialogue about, you know, what what is appropriate and what's appropriate now and what the training should be. And it's, it it's never been that way. It's always been that the teacher... Like in Asia, the teacher decides what the patience, <laughs> the student learns. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's not like the student gets to go. Well, I don't agree. This this seems a bit rough. I want to go. So, so is it just we've become so entitled?
1: I must admit, and it's one of those things. I, I as my as a coach, when I first started out, I always aspired to form relationships or have people give the respect that for example I automatically would have given to Pimu or Manasek or yeah. anyone, anyone of the likes yeah. um, but it's just not yeah. the way we work in mm-hmm. Western societies you don't see people people don't hold yeah. those positions of absolute love and power yeah. and respect Um, And it's it's, it's one of those things, I I think we've probably had had Mm. similar comments from students over the time about what is an appropriate level, how many press-ups can you expect a new person to do, and and, and (laughs) what is the goal? Are you trying to run a business, or are you trying to instill an ethos in people? And I know what I've always felt, I've never cared as a coach about turning people away. I've never worried about turning people off, because the sorts of people that I think you want to teach are the sorts of people who want to be there and are there for the right reasons and are willing to mm-hmm. yeah i think it cuts the th- things like that some of the more traditional styles of teaching can really cut cut the chaff from the week you know um and can 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 yeah. immediately yeah. demonstrate to you or show to you who are the people who are worth investing yeah. in in the same manner that you yeah. would as as, mm-hmm. as as a yeah yeah are going to be worth giving your time and are going to Stick it out. Yeah,
0: that's an interesting (laughs) dilemma because on one level, you have to sort the wheat from the chaff. You want to know who's actually there seriously because there are people that will just time waste and that are wasting their own time. And so they'll waste other people's time. But then also what you've said that maybe they're the people that need it most and that actually can benefit from that type of attitude if they can get the ethos. So maybe that old attitude would be to weed out the week all of the time. But, Are we just more... I don't, I don't think Is it's about well? weeding
1: out the week. Mm-hmm. So for example, so yeah. some of my favourite students and it, it yeah. applies both within Thai boxing and within ecology, the favorite people I've mentored, they're not, they were, haven't been either the most intellectually gifted or the most technically yeah. or physically gifted. It's the people who are willing mm. to try the hardest. It's, 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 it's yeah. I, 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 I remember Imperial, I did a little bit of coaching and I've got one of my closest friends and he's still a close friend today called Dermot McMurrah. And he only trained with me a few times, mm. but you told Dermot to do whatever exercise it was. And my God, he gave it us all. It doesn't matter what it was. It didn't matter how yeah. hard he was struggling. And there's mm. something in in, in people yeah. who are willing to do that and, you know, mm-hmm. people who are willing to try something new, try something that's outside of their comfort yeah. limit, but are willing to throw themselves at it 100% that I find inspiring, even as someone who would be yeah. skilled in these things. Cause it's, I mean, yeah.
0: Well, that's what I I don't mean weak as in weak uh, in athleticism. I mean like weak in terms of spirit. You could have somebody that's very talented, but they never show up and they never want to do it. Can you develop spirit? Or they pick apart. Yeah, that's interesting. Desire. I think moments in our lives give us spirit. Like if you fall off the wagon and you actually end up in a terrible state of affairs, you'll have to develop some spirit to address that problem. I look at it as kind of desire. To actually, you know, what's your aim? What's your goal in coming into training? And it, like your friend, if he's somebody who's not particularly athletically gifted, but his goal is to do it, then that requires spirit and requires a a strength of character rather than just a strength of so your I body think, or I, your ability. I think
1: it's that. And again, I think it ties into this, this, mm. this underlying theme that we've had all along, which is one of the, those applications mm. of martial arts to the real world, which is, I think that spirit comes mm. from Again, the stories you tell yourselves, if you're going into something and you're like, well, I'm going to try this out and see if it's fun. Well, then you're probably going to give up Mm -hmm. when things get hard. But if you're going in and you're like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to give this everything I can, then when shit Mm -hmm. starts hitting the fan, you're going to double down and keep working and push through. And that's when that development is still And It's about finding that meaning in it again. Life is Mm -hmm. suffering. So you might as well find some fucking reason for it. <laughs>
0: yeah that's really interesting but that comes back as well to what we're saying about trust about committing yourself to the process because if you don't commit to the process when it gets tough you're going to drop out but in order to commit there's kind of a leap of faith because you don't necessarily know what the training is going to be you don't know what's going to happen but you have to say I'm in 100% and that is that trust in your trainer and in your gym and in the the ethos of the even the martial art itself that it's something worth doing. Yeah,
1: that's interesting. I don't think I've ever considered that before.
0: That did kind of, but that's like levels of trust. I mean, because you could have a very good karate teacher, but maybe you wouldn't be committed to the karate in general, perhaps because of the, maybe the tradition of it, or it's just not, it doesn't fit your aims. Um, so there's, yeah, there's the, between the, the person yeah. who's training, the trainer and the actual discipline itself.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. Hmm, what the hell is going on? <laughs> oh, God. So strange. But that loss of trust, I feel, is so terrible, man. I learned so much from committing myself to trainers going, okay, I'm in 100% and, you know, I'll deal with whatever comes. And it's a beautiful thing, but it's rare. I don't think I've ever course. had a
1: loss of... I think I think the the more you get to know trainers, teachers, whoever they are, you see the fallibility in them. Doesn't yeah. I mean everyone's human. But I don't yeah. think I've ever lost. Yeah. I, th- I think as soon as you're, or at least in my mindset, as soon as you've dedicated to someone, or, or even it doesn't even matter to that. As soon as someone's shown you they're willing to invest their time in you, then there's almost a yeah a, a, a debt that you invest your time in them, and I think the trust builds from there. Yeah. Um. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a That's it. I mean, that's it's
0: kind of the plot of the new karate kid thing. I don't know if you've seen that the Cobra guy, Um, like the guy Johnny Lawrence, that he has his coach, uh, the guy Coos, that's like a military veteran, but that the guy's kind of a dark wizard. So he's committed himself to this path, but eventually he has to leave it because this guy isn't aiming at the right thing. He's using it for nefarious purposes in terms of control and power and do you think i think we're you, obsessed with that as a society See,
1: that, in, an, in a narrative corruption of power in a narrative form that works and can be realistic but do you think within a yeah. real world situation you'd ever be able to, i think it'd be very mm. very difficult to step back from someone you've spent yeah. decades working with and step back mm. and say your motivations are wrong mm. because by that point i mean humans yeah. are chameleons right we, we we take on the things around and yeah. we take on the world beliefs of the people who are close yeah. to us um, mm. So my God, the, the strength it would have to take to have to do something like that in a, in a, yeah. Mm. But then I suppose it's... And you'd have taken
0: on the characteristics and, but I guess that you could imagine it coming to a point where that would have to happen. I guess you've seen it um, with some martial artists and stuff that break with trainers. And I suppose people change over time yeah, as and well. I think that
1: probably change over time is probably a significant thing, right? Because... I mean, one, you might develop as a person which might lead to things to your, your your opinions or motivations yeah. or wants to diverge, or they might. And yeah, yeah. it can lead to a mm-hmm. two big clash of personalities.
0: Yeah. But the big problem, I think, is where we don't have that trust in teachers to begin with. Whatever about if it becomes pathologized, which it does in maybe a small number of cases, but that people don't enter into those kind of relationships because of the fear of the other one. I think it's overmarked How you these remedy days it? that every... Yeah, like every mentor is like a sex pest or something that's looking to, you know, that there is this whole culture around uh, people that are in positions of authority being corrupt. I
1: I think this is is a side of the world I don't see. And I think it might be because Mm. within, I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm a straight white man, as you'll know, Mahan so (laughs) my my uh, my my my, my, my teachers being sex pests to me has never been a huge concern of mine but i think there's there's that that vulnerability Mm. that and again i think it's how how perceptions change it's probably why it's so important right Mm -hmm. me and you can have Mm -hmm. opinions on things because we don't have certain fears about the world and we aren't vulnerable in the same way Mm. that other members of society would be and so but i still think there needs to be a it can go too far one way, you know. I, th- I think you can still have re- respect in mentors and still find safe boundaries where they aren't abused and manipulated. Yeah, um,
0: yeah. and I'd like. Lo- well, that's. I mean, that's the question. Can you? Because if it if it's an all or nothing relationship with authority in that sense, if it is like a an apprenticeship, you have to commit yourself to the path of the warrior
1: completely. Is there a but there's 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 lines there's lines here right because there's 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 it depends what we mean by say manipulation of these things but say i was i was training under yeah and I mean, he joke about it a lot. But yeah. if, if I came into training one day and at the end of yeah. training Bob was like, "Now suck my dick for real," I'm I'm not going to be <laughs> yeah. like, "Okay, I'm committed to Hang this on. training exercise." You know? I, I, <laughs> yeah. You know, so, so I think I think I think there's there's lines you can draw, and no matter how committed you are to something, there's 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 lines in the sand that you yeah. always have to be able to walk away from. And I mean, there's there's there's, yeah. there's mm. a lot of things in place that should be able to. Support. <laughs> Sorry, Bob. Uh, yeah. <laughs> have have
0: everybody waxing <laughs> you after training. <laughs> this is, is <laughs> um, oh man, we joke, but I mean, I could, but I mean but, but,
1: but could, It's sort yeah. of one of the things, right? You 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 know if these things were happening because, and you, you yeah. can base you 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 can form your trust based on the circle of students that someone has around them. You know, people talk, right? Yeah. So if you've got some, or at yeah. least you'd like to think so, especially more and more, and 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 and, and, mm. and you think about the big Me Too movement and things like that, things have progressed a yeah. lot in recent years. But even within, if we take yeah. martial arts as a specific case, you can tell the attitude or style of a teacher or how he treats his students likely from the students and the relationships they had with each other and with the teacher. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm.
0: Well, that's interesting because you do get what like gym cultures that you're like, oh, I don't know what the crack is here. If you went into it and the attitude maybe seems off for you or seems like this is, you know, maybe this doesn't fit me or it's a bit commercial or it's a bit, I mean, there is a culture to a gym which you gravitate towards. I thought it was very interesting that I ended up say in this Muay Thai club rather than a different one where, cause obviously people are students and fighters and we have this kind of, you know. There's maybe it's a bit more intellectual than other ones, as well as like competitive and fighting base. And I really gravitated to the attitude of the club and the spirit and the ethos of it. Whereas maybe if I was different, I would have chosen another club. So maybe you get what you sign up for, (laughs) in a sense that you're you're attracted to what is already
1: similar to your you know yeah I mean if something similar life outlook it's going to be easier to relate to and easier to to join a community or associate with. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Hmm. Very so, interesting. Man, there's something stuff, you said bro. towards the beginning of this talk, and we have to go back to it because I hate the word. Uh, and that yeah. was you said something about rewilding. About rewilding. Yeah, acid. yeah. What, what is that word? What that, it? Do?
0: That's what you're doing. That, that's what you're doing, aren't you? With oh. all, all that time in nature. Oh. Here. Oh. <laughs> oh. You're re- rewilding, bro. Oh. Getting in touch with your inner. Nature. I just don't know what real Arding means. Now. <laughs> is I don't
1: think there's a more nebulous word. I know. Term in the I world. mean,
0: it's it is nebulous indeed, man. It's nice and vague. Uh, it's one of those, I guess, trendy words that somebody coined on a Tim Ferriss podcast, probably about <laughs>
1: going out to the forest and yeah, being in nature so it's been it's it's uh, been it's been adapted now so it gets used in my circles a lot and really it can mean it it doesn't really refer to individuals and it refers to complete approaches to landscape Mm -hmm. management but it it gets it it, yeah yeah. so it gets basically it can mean one of four things Mm. it can either mean pleistocene methods which is basically you think the world should be like it was before the ice age so let's bring back the mammoth or it can be (laughs) <laughs> oh oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, or it can be it can be tro- trophic <laughs> rewilding, which I think is a good thing. So trophic uh-huh. restoration, bringing back predators, restoring ecosystem yeah. function, or it can just be land abandonment and, and, and habitat restoration. But it's, it's terms like that, and then you can apply it on individuals, as you did. But it's weird how yeah. terms like that can become. I mean, that is such a polarizing term. If you mention that within such ecological a- circles or circles that are interested in nature, you get this binary response. And again, it's one of the things that I've always mm. found myself feeling almost different from the group because I, I, I can't see a yes or a no answer to that. and It's, it's in that grey and in that mm-hmm. nuance that I think the right answer probably lies. I think it's probably true of almost everything. But we want...
0: Yeah, do you think it's becoming, it's kind of a... Uh... You know, if you say it's kind of a binary, yes or no, it's like, are you in or are you out, kind like, of thing. Every, everything is, it, is
1: Do You either but, want to go there or you don't. We look about public discourse about bloody everything, and it's one of the things that are, uh, black, yeah. And, white. and everyone wants to have this this black and white response to things. You either are for something or mm. against something, and I think it's the yeah. least intellectual approach to anything in the world. Uh, I mean, being able to truly consider and understand any subject matter requires you to hold Mm. the opposite view at the same time. And I think you need to be able to have that little bit of cognitive dissonance to be able to really put yourselves in and accept that other view. And I think it's why take politics, how polarized! no one fucking listens to each other in politics anymore. Everyone just shouts their shit and their slogans and doesn't listen to the other side. And so we have no discourse. And it happens so much in conservation circles that progress is limited by these these in-groups and out-groups. Um, and it's that... It's- Which is so funny because science is about nuance. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's about
0: not being black and white about things. but it- as far as I understand, at least for
1: sure. But you have to so, remember, there's 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 this line between science and policy, and that line isn't 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 yeah. driven by researchers. Researchers can do quantitative yeah. evidence, but how that is communicated to the public and the discourse mm-hmm. around that is not led by the same people doing it. Um, and it's, it's no. why and, it,
0: and most of the time it's kind of what's popular. I mean, you're just trying to sell things to people. It's marketing, 100%. isn't it? Really above you're, trying to get money for stuff it's
1: it's worse than that as well right because it's also saying Mm. the thing that frustrates me about most discussions about things in modern day conservation and public platforms is that we oversimplify things so hugely. We assume that every yep. member of the public yep. is an idiot. So we're going to simplify things so they're basically no longer true anymore. And we're going to say it's either this mm-hmm. or that. Well, it's neither because mm-hmm. everything has nuance and additional complexity. And we, we do it in everything, right? As humans, we have schemas. We have these simplif- simplified ideas of the world that if I do this, this is how the response should be. And I mean, and, and science is based on it. Everything we do is based on modern models, mm-hmm. which are abstractions of the world, and we pin things down to their very simplest form. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things, that I think, in mm-hmm. all parts of the world, if we start to increase complexity, we start to increase understanding and we allow for one, better predictions of what's going to happen, but two, a greater understanding of the world around us. Um, and that is, A
0: greater understanding of what is the case, yeah, for sure. The, because it's not even clear a lot of the time. A lot of the time the discourse now, it's so fragmented that people can't even agree what's actually happening. People will see the same event and come away with different facts about it. So we have such a such a lack of a. I mean, but that's the interesting thing. If you don't agree on one thing with somebody, how can you actually have a shared discourse? I always find this with the postmodern thing, which is if you can't even agree that the truth exists in some sense, how can you have a conversation to try and find the truth? There has to be. You have to believe that there is a thing that you're working towards to even attempt to
1: figure it out. So I have to remember, <laughs> as, as a researcher, the the idea that well, the postmodernism's approach that there is no truth or it's everything is completely biased by the past. To me, there's quantifiably language. measurable things. Yeah, and it's 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 almost manipulation of language and and and. Nonsense to a point, but I do agree with you that there. That how can you have a discussion or a debate about something or come to a group decision when mm-hmm. you're discussing two different things? I mean, it's, it's one of the things that I think happens in lots of big debates. You can't agree on the facts, and sometimes you can't even agree on what you're debating.
0: Yeah, are the words that you're using to debate. I think in academics, that's a particular problem because of greater specialization and people coming from different fields that are now so different that you don't even have the same terminology to describe, like they're, they're completely alien worlds to one another and yet they're having to cross paths. And I think, do you find that yourself in your, that there's kind of factions in academia that... It's very hard to get anything done across company lines. Oh, it's interesting. Should there be no, more of an open? So I plane? think it's one
1: of the nice things, especially in 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 one. Is is I go through my career is there's more and more of a push towards multidisciplinary methods and now there's there's some of these that I think are fantastic you know when you've got uh, geneticists working with mathematicians working with physicists on an ecological yeah. question I think that's mm. awesome but then you've got uh, mm-hmm. English literature students coming at those things and I'm like I don't know what you've got to input <laughs> here um, you've so, got me wandering <laughs> in there like oh yeah um, but, but of course there's always going to be there's always gonna, when we with any in group and out group we develop a language right it's part of being in that in group yep. it's part of being of a community and so there's always going to yep. be uh, miss shots and crossfires when you get two groups trying to come together towards those things but i'd like to think mm-hmm. within academia or within within people who are i don't want to say intellectual it sounds but i say say within 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 any intellectual group you're going to be able to find words to agree on it's just providing those definitions from the officer. and also not yeah. looking to use, I think there's a lot of pedancy. You know, you can, if, if you want to argue with someone, then you're going to pick on, oh, well, how someone's using an individual word or their application when really you want to be...
0: Well, it is kind of a get out of jail free card, isn't it? Where you can rely on semantics. So say if you've realized that what you're doing is verifiably wrong, you can just muddy the water so much that nobody can actually discern what you are doing. But isn't that... That happens in philosophy But, but isn't lot. that gross?
1: If you realise what you're doing is wrong, then shouldn't you, shouldn't you say what I'm doing is wrong? Because then people can learn from that goddamn mistake and not make the same one two years down the line or five years down the line or ten years down the line.
0: Or that you don't e- don't even care about right and wrong in the first place, which Matt, is what's right the big, I guess... Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. The, the, ethics, <laughs> the ethics that underlie science dictates how science is done as well. So it's the kind of... Irrational, you know. You would say that what you're doing is good, but then you'd have to say, "Well, what is good?" And it's not a reasonable, so there's, there's a, you know.
1: There's a thing there you said which has sparked a whole. Oh, it's going to be have to be a whole new whole new podcast, man. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, so if you think about, so you think about the, the for example, the ethics required within academia or research, mm-hmm. and so for example, yeah. in science, yeah. and, and often, often, if you take, mm-hmm. I'm going to go really left field here often you see for example when we talk about religion people who are atheists will criticize people who believe in god for believing things they read in some book that was written relatively recently yeah and yet scientists or really dogmatic atheists also do a very similar thing because they're just trusting the words of people they've never read before either now as as, as a researcher there's there's uh Oh, huge responsibility to have high ethics and models. Mm. But you seeing at the minute that there's something called Pruitt Gate going on, where one of the world's leading evolutionary ecologists, Jonathan Pruitt, has been found that, with loads of nature papers and science papers, has been found or is under investigation for faking data uh, and, and manipulating data Whoa. and generating data. And it's been yeah. a huge, <laughs> huge, huge um instance within yeah. within within my field at the minute. And it really does rock you to your core a bit because the foundations of what yeah. you believe in is the fact that people are accurately reporting what they do. And if you don't then mm. Christ, what yeah. Yeah. It, it, it but it's easy, right? If that's
0: the problem, 'cause it's a it's a team effort, isn't it? I mean you all stand on each other's shoulders in in that research. So if somebody's faking stuff, it's gonna get perpetuated.
1: Exactly. Throughout. Exactly that. But then and then it becomes this weird thing, right? It becomes I mean, you can if you take the morality aside, you can sort of see in a modern day world where you wanna succeed and achieve, you can see why the motivations are there. So then it yeah. becomes a question of do we need to try yeah. and change how people who have this responsibility are developing in their in their careers. Like, should we, should we necessarily be trying to force people to publish as often as they can, or should we, you know, it's, yeah, yeah. yeah. I th- I have heard
0: this, I've heard this argued by Peter Thiel and Eric Weinstein. They did a podcast on academia in the portal about the perverse incentives that are happening because of the commodification of it because you have people getting pushed through to be PhD students and because people are doing undergraduates to do masters, to do PhDs. But the question is, do you need that many people doing that? Is there enough space in academia for people to be constantly, you know, trying to climb up the rungs in it? And what, how does that affect the quality of the work. I mean, are people being incentivized to make salacious things, to make big claims, to appear more important because their job security I mean,
1: 100% is it's, it's or
0: their career it's path?
1: One of the, I think, things that undermines academia and research full stop is the demand for novelty mm-hmm. and innovation. And so, so Charlie yeah. Krebs, who's one of the leading population ecologists uh, uh, he has this fantastic blog where he's like if we banned these words and instead within science and funding grants we looked for rigor and scientific excellence rather than novelty yeah. if we looked for replicability mm. then we'd be improving science yeah. rather than looking for innovation and new that it promotes these salacious claims that promotes people to oversell their results mm. and what they've seen rather if we just say we want gold standard scientific rigor then everything would be mm. so much more improved and there'd be less of this drive to 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 well
0: less misinformation as well I mean there's a huge problem I was reading about in psychology the retestability problem where over 50% of psychological Tests don't
1: repeat. Oh, yeah. I think so it's every single field. Bullshit. Is, and, but but I, I, you don't remember, I don't think, it, I don't think it necessarily means it, it's bullshit, does it? So you can, you can repeat mm. a similar test on a similar sample yeah. repeatedly and you can get different mm. outcomes. It just depends how, what yeah, your sample size is, right? So you'd want mm. the to consistently be a similar result. You wouldn't want it to be spurious, otherwise you'd yeah. start to question it. Probably got changes from yeah. academic to academic and PI to PI and how much that scientific rigor matters to them. But I think lots of people are so worried mm. about their ref assessment and their career development. that They just want good student reviews and good grades for their students so they look good. And it's no longer about teaching people, it's about improving your own status. Um, and
0: Yeah, it, that's exactly what I, I heard bits and bobs on that, on the controversy surrounding that, the whole model of it. If, if it is sustainable in, in terms of the, you know, is it doing its job at all are, are is there more misinformation coming than information because of but, this perverse what's, incentive? The,
1: what's the job what's the job of academia mm.
0: i suppose to add to the existing body of knowledge yeah. that we have or at least to refine even you could look at it in a sense to find truth i would have thought would be the basic you know to figure out what the world yeah. is and yeah, I do. it can't make value judgments but I'd, I'd, that, that's what I'd, I'd agree with that,
1: but then so and this becomes the question: is I don't think you could have too many people trying to do that. So it doesn't. I don't think it matters how many yeah. people are going in—undergrad, mm. masters, or PhD or whatever else. I don't think yeah. as long as obviously you've got a sustainable society and you've got enough people growing your food and doing all the other important jobs yeah. that allow us mm. folk to sit on our asses and ponder things all day. But again, <laughs> yeah. I think it comes back to how we. Motivate people and how the system is structured and rigged. Um, and you yeah. know, if, if if it's important for the person who is paying as a student to not only get a good grade but also to rate you highly, and that determines how you progress, then you're obviously going to do everything yeah. you can. No, you don't care about that student learning. You care you're incentivized. Yeah, because, yeah, because, yeah, 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 that's and, and it's, it's, it's Sorry, yeah. Go ahead. yeah. People's
0: survival are too embedded in. It's a strange. It's funny because you'd think academia, you know, the in- intellect, very human, you know, transcending your animal nature, but you have all these problems of survival and status and basic human emotions that are all tied up in it. That can a person really do honest scientific work if their job is at stake based on their results?
1: Uh, you know, Well, so I, I think I think of course you can. And I, and I hope that Mm. 99% of people doing it do, but I I do think Mm. there is, there is, you can empathize to a certain degree with those who don't because the motivations are so strong. You want to have that big result. You want to have whatever else it is. Um, and and but that's just not how research of any kind works. Most of the things you do, it, it turns out as you go through, is is null results. is nothing. You don't find out what you want. Your null hypothesis were true. It was all down to chance. Yeah, it's not meant but, to be sexy. Yeah, but that's not but... exciting. No one wants to publish your paper about that. <laughs> yeah. uh,
0: is is it becoming like football or something? Like everybody wants to see. Uh fucking a big hat trick in the science field but again i I think
1: we we can we can complain about the the negatives and the bad parts but i also think there's massive improvements going on you look at you look at the reproducibility of science nowadays the demands for entire data sets to be published alongside all code and everything like that and everything Mm -hmm. to be completely foolproof so anybody who comes along can read the paper Mm -hmm. and entirely replicate the results and i do think that is going to be the 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 pinpoint in the saving grace of modern day yeah. research and science that keeps it honest is that demand for well, that seems open right, yeah. access. Do you think we're Do you think we're doing something silly here in
0: abstracting academia in general? Maybe we're oversimplifying something that's actually quite dependent on the institutions themselves and the people in those institutions. Because I, I, I guess you hear a lot of complaints about academia in general, but there is there a governing body of the whole thing? No, I mean of course is there not. the peer review no, yes. is so it is the I mean especially upon. when it comes to
1: publications, right? Is is and it's the biggest joke mm. in the world is you've got some of the most mm. intellectually minded people who are uh, writing papers are then often paying publishers mm. to publish those papers and those publishers then get other scientists to peer review them for free and then charge members of the public to read them. Mm. But the people writing the papers and peer reviewing the papers don't get any economic, economic incentive to do money. it, um, and it, mm-hmm. it's, it's, so it's wild that you've got these these gatekeeper publishers that dictate how the world yeah. runs and, and and put economic barriers on things. I mean, you look at some of the the, the biggest mm-hmm. scientific articles in the world, and they're discussing charging for reviews. Well, then you're excluding yeah. huge amounts of of institutions th- from who aren't necessarily maybe in the Western world or the most economic prosperous areas, mm-hmm. and you're saying, well, your research yeah. isn't 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 warranted in the most high impact papers and you're losing so much so much incredible science and research um, I
0: yeah and you're putting a price on what what people exactly. know and what And the again and then
1: you are taking away I mean knowledge that no longer becomes equitable and it only becomes provided mm-hmm. to, to, to those who can afford it and it's one of the one of the things that you know what, what do you think about sci hub do you know about sci hub I heard
0: about this where that they, they were giving away papers well, so it's not, it's, and- People were saying like yeah, don't use Well them.
1: no but, well, so this is this is the mad thing, right? Is you've got you've got so within science you've got the situation which I just described where researchers Uh, basically giving their papers and the rights of their research to publishers to be in their journals. Mm -hmm. But then the journals are putting Mm -hmm. pay screens on it. So, you know, if anybody wants to access this paper, Mm -hmm. you either have to belong to an institution or you have to pay 50 quid. And you you think about how you'd like to think as knowledge comes forward. And I had a big debate with a friend of mine recently about is knowledge Mm -hmm. in the one-day world equitable? And he said, yes. He said, you can go Mm -hmm. onto Google and look things up. Mm -hmm. Everyone's got more access to knowledge than they ever did before. And I say no, because... For two reasons, one, because mm-hmm. you've got these huge pay barriers on lots and lots of research, but also because mm-hmm. where knowledge develops, so where research projects in mm-hmm. any field goes, isn't decided democratically. It's decided by a few people mm-hmm. who hold the purse strings. Um, and
0: I, Yeah, this is a massive, even with the internet, man, I've thought about that a lot myself. Is it more democratic to have access to all of this information or is it actually more confusing. I mean, it it requires people to make sense of things that they've never had to make sense of before. And the whole, I think it's causing a lot of uh, you, yeah fragmentation. You, you,
1: you, you've just hit the nail on the head with the whole issue of fake news and how social media can be used to manipulate all sorts of things, right? Because if you're not, if you're not taught mm. how to discern reliable sources, then you see things written down and you can believe yeah. them. It doesn't matter whether they say cows can yep. fly or, you know, there's 5 Gs going to kill yep. us all or there's microchips in your vaccine. Yep. Um, and, I, I do think, yeah. and I do think that 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 scientific literacy that ability to n- know what a real source is and what a paper is is so so important and should be drilled up more rather than in it less that's fascinating that's i was i was listening to a podcast last night and i thought he actually
0: uh joe rogan with a guy called andy norman mm. who's written a book called mental immunity he's a philosopher i don't I don't know if I like the analogy, to be honest. I don't know if the metaphor is correct, but his argument is that there's mental viruses. Your mind has an immune system and he describes bad ideas as mental viruses and that the process of discerning good and bad ideas is your uh, mental immune system. His basic thing is he's trying to use that to teach people critical thinking. That like, if me and you were sitting beside a fire and I said, Uh, reach in and grab that hot coal for me, will you? You'd you'd, uh, do a little simulation in your head and you'd go, oh no, that'll hurt me. So I'm not going to do it. It depends if you're my respected teacher.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, as part of your training, Josh, (laughs) the mental immune. So I I Mm -hmm. entirely agree with you that I don't really like that analogy. But I also think it's I don't like but I also think it's a very important it. point though. And it's one of those things that the modern day education system does not equip people for. Is we teach people how to memorize things and how to repeat those things. Like modern day testing, we're not testing People, Mm. we're not testing the important things. We're not testing people's ability to critically think, to consider two ideas at once, to to, to be able to research a subject they want Mm. to find out more. We're just trying to get people to say, how many facts can you remember, write them all down, which isn't useful in the modern world because Mm. any facts you want, you can just Google. That is the important skill is that ability to critically analyze, to judge sources, to think Mm. about the motivations of the person writing and reading and, and Yeah. So important. So, in, and just, yeah, the quality of,
0: I mean, with philosophy, a big thing that you learn with the Socratic method is that you have, I mean, we justify things by reasons. Whoever has the best reasons is, you know, the right one. But the problem is the way we select reasons is already based on pre-existing biases. We, we already, we have our belief and then we think of the reasons post hoc So you already believe that the government are evil or something. You'll go and find all of the conspiracy theories to back up that belief that you already have. It's not, and you'll show it as evidence, as proof of it, but it's actually, you're just collecting whatever it is that already verifies your position. But it's... it kind of justifies what we were talking about before, the openness
1: to... It's also, it's, it's, a, it's, a, flawed, it's a flawed method of doing anything, isn't it? It's why, it's, why, mm. it's why your justifications or your... Nothing should be based on just reasons. It should be based on evidence. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, that is something that needs to be or has to be imbued on people from a young age. Otherwise, you, yeah. you, you mm-hmm. believe something and you'll find everything to challenge that well And again, it, it ties, into, yeah. ties into issues with social media, these echo chambers that we build ourselves and the algorithms mm-hmm. that select yeah. things that just allow us to see the things that they think we're going to agree with. Um, and, it,
0: and it pushes us towards our, our more nefarious kind of aims that are emotional and not particularly reasonable. Yeah, for
1: sure, for sure. And it's, it's one of the things that I've always enjoyed. And it's one of the things that I think it was, uh, Bob, one of my first Thai boxing teacher told me to do, which is on social media, join a bunch mm. of groups of worldviews. You absolutely despise because at least then you'll be seeing <laughs> yeah. things that challenge you and you won't enter yourself into an echo chamber. Yeah. When you think everybody yeah. agrees with me and the world is yeah. sunny and full of roses. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: Oh, it's so, yeah, it's so doable. And the, I mean, the thing with the news feed and everything, except for the fact that it's called a news feed, <laughs> but the, <laughs> as if you're you're actually getting the news from it, um, but that it's optimized for personalization. So it's, obviously it's a feedback loop of the more decisions you make, the more it'll show you that content, but it acts as if it's objective. It acts as if it's some sort of representation of, of reality, real in- but what you're getting is, that's, that's the big issue I think with a lot of, it, we're, I'm kind of coming to the point where it, it's like that people aren't, we're not reasonable. We we are these emotional creatures first and foremost. And that kind of exposure to information is going to cause people to just play to their tribal group, whatever they identify with, whatever their emotional predisposition is, that's what they're going to search for. So the internet isn't actually increasing the amount of knowledge in the world. It's actually going to have the opposite effect of this
1: kind of uh, well, it's the
0: distribu- it's the, stickiness of what you it's already It's the distribution
1: know. of information though, isn't it? Because there, w- there would be more information available mm. in total, but the amount of information yeah. that each individual is getting will be limited. And so, yeah, I mean, it, mm-hmm. yeah... Well, I suppose
0: you'd have to go, if you go the extra mile, you can do what you've done and join groups of people that disagree with you. But the question is, why would people go the extra mile when it's a lot more salacious and a lot more, you get a lot more dopamine for certainty than you do for uncertainty. In fact, uncertainty and thinking is not incentivized as an animal creature. So you're, you're kind of at odds with yourself in that sense that we're we're kind of um, specialised for dealing with what we know over what we don't know, and it's uh, but this
1: is one of the th- this, is, yeah. this is one of the things, and it comes up again and again. And one of the things that it really bugs me is so, for example, jo- Jordan yeah. Peterson. And you take – and mm-hmm. so I – there's a lot of the messages that Jordan Peterson has about personal mm-hmm. responsibility and finding meaning in struggle yeah. that I agree with. But he also has yeah. these pseudoscientific hierarchical justifications for a lot of the things he says. And so, so, for example, you know, he bases the fact that we are animals and we live within these certain systems and we have these these mechanistic yeah. drivers. But it's like, shit mm-hmm. me. We, we, yes, we are animals, but also – we do not think w- with how far we've come, we should be able to step above that and move beyond that. I mean, there's, there's, there's certain, like, it's like, it's exactly like, so within that social media example, sure, we might have these yeah. triggers and these, these these dopamine pushes that lead us to want to go down mm-hmm. one route. But as a society, should we not yeah. be purposely trying to put up barriers that challenge that and change that and elevate that? One hundred percent. It's even that I totally. Agree. I mean, it's even that idea of in groups and out groups, right? That that tribalism, mm-hmm. and it's one of the things that why why I don't I, I don't really buy into say postmodernistic views or, or collectivism mm-hmm. views because it requires on us to have mm-hmm. these these tribal in groups and out groups. Um, but but in, in a globalized modern world, what do they achieve? They they, they don't progress mm-hmm. anything, right? People want to have, people want to be able to identify as one thing or another because they want to feel like they've got a community but realistically your community should be based in small groups of personal interest not on these broad street escapements that don't actually allow you to or, or, or provide you with any real connection or association with people
0: and that are very rigid and not actually don't contain a lot of information i mean you can tell a lot more about your personality by what you're interested in than say the color of your skin or your you know Or sexuality, or something like that, but the—I guess—to come back to what you were saying, I 100% agree with you that we should be able to transcend that animal nature, and we should have checks and balances in place in our culture to encourage delay of gratification. But I don't think we have that. I think the the it's such a mixed economy at the moment, or um, um, the maybe it's just the culture wars. I don't know, but there there's very little. Um, people are, I think, fall between the cracks because it is, as you've said, it requires a certain amount of effort and delay of gratification to overcome it. And as you see in with training and things like that, there isn't necessarily that in built-in people. It's actually something you have to learn through a process of discipline. And maybe we don't have teachers to teach that discipline anymore unless people seek them out. Well, I
1: mean, out. We, sort, we sort of screwed from the start, right? Because I mean, if you think about <laughs> capitalist societies, they feed into that human nature. And, I mean, we think about the people who are, if we're talking about our social media example, the the people who are governing what we see on social media don't want us to develop as people or society. They just want us to click links and look at ads. And so it's... Maximize Yeah, attention. exactly. Maximize attention. It's beneficial for them to keep getting that dopamine push from us. So keep showing us the positive news. And, and, and that's never going to change with the systems we have in place, I guess. So, I mean, we can... we can. Well, this is... Yeah, sorry no, to call you no, there, but
0: that it's just hit on... That's what I want to do with my PhD in, is that, is it ethical? I mean, I think we should actually have a bill of animal rights for human beings because of that that problem with capitalism, that if you're incentivizing for maximizing attention all of the time, the incentives are to manipulate the game to create people as slaves, whatever way you can, really to press on their fear, on their sex, on their aggression, on their outrage as much as possible to get them to stay there. But this is actually some regulation.
1: This is this has been monarchy and no, but politics it's just heightened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, it's, heightened in a way that it's in everybody's pocket. And so so and your idea of a, a bill of animal rights. How would it how would it differ? So so mm. would this be about your moral approaches, so how you're it would be about what, what's
0: ethical business. I mean, what can you do to people and what can't you do? I mean, we can't sell alcohol to children and we're debating that with things like pornography and with, you know, different access to websites. Social media will be one as well because it makes kids mentally ill. So we're already trying to decide, you know, what the rules of the game are, what's fair play. And I think if we had a coherent picture of human nature, that's based on evolution, it would be easier to identify the weak points and to say, okay, to play the game, you're not allowed to press on those weak points. Or, you're, or there's a degree that you're allowed to do it, but that this is too far. This is the line in the sand. I, and we don't have that at the I'm, moment. It's developing. I think, I must
1: admit, I think it's fascinating. I, I, I wouldn't expect to hear that viewpoint coming from yourself. Um, purely, yeah. purely because I often see yeah. s- see yourself as someone who believes in individual freedoms. And, and especially, I mean, you yeah. say social yeah. media makes, mm. makes children mentally ill. I think it probably makes all of us mentally ill. Yeah. you spend too much time on social yeah. media, it warps how you see the world and what's important. <laughs> yeah, 100%. But, but also mm. as, as adults and as humans, we have, yeah. one, we should have the responsibility or the right to be able to decide what we want to do and what we do. But also we should have the... Yep. The the goddamn common sense to be able to pick what is right and what is wrong. <laughs> yeah.
0: <sighs> to come away from the fire and stop burning your face yeah, off yeah. um just because it's warm. Exactly. That's but that's I suppose the two-pronged nature of it that I'm kind of debating at the moment about the PhD was you can do it from one perspective which is regulation of business, and you can do it as regulation of individuals. They're two different things, but they're kind of two sides of the same coin. But the individual regulation is something that's like what we've talked about with martial arts. It's delay of gratification. It's it's that discipline. That, you can't, you can't and, have
1: regulation of individuals without living in an entirely draconian society, can you? And that has to be a personal well, choice. Well, we
0: encourage... I mean... Yeah. Yeah. Of course. It w- it wouldn't be like, you can just like, we're going to enforce it on everybody, but you can encourage people. Like, yeah. We're gonna going to put cameras and everybody's um, uh, but that you can encourage that in people the same way you encourage people to train or to say, look at the benefits of this. You know, this is a good way of doing things. We should aim at this as a society and get people behind it so that, you know, young people will go, okay, there is another path to this rather than, you know, just indulging myself all the time because it's, it's the dark side of luxury, isn't it? We're going to have it. The more prosperous we become, the more we're going to sit on, the more we can not exist. Well, what what, do, you think, what do you think? What do you think? I mean, it's,
1: exa- it's exactly, that, right? But this is, this is one of the issues and it's one of the confines of the modern world that I think we often overlook is that I mean, you talk mm. about how social media affects mental health, but how does luxury mm. and privilege affect mental health? You no, know, I, I don't, yeah, I don't think that if you're worried about, you know, if you go back a hundred years or you mm. go to, if you grew up in somewhere you where you were less fortunate and you had to worry about when your next meal was going to come from, or if you're going to have a roof under your head, yeah. then my God, you didn't have the luxury to think that you were feeling anxious about something or depressed about something. And <laughs> yeah. there's, there's, there's this weird, there's this weird um. thing where the, comfort and the wonders of the modern world where we don't have to worry about these things for a lot of people who are, well, people who are privileged anyway who don't have to worry about these things mm. how does that how does that lead or drive the current epidemic in mental health we're seeing and what are the remedies for it
0: that's fast exactly 100% my thinking on it is that there there's advantages to disadvantages and there's disadvantages to advantages so having money is an advantage but the disadvantages the character you'd need to survive and to develop without money is missing. But, so you actually lose that character.
1: But I, don't, I don't want to romanticise poverty because it's not, that's not a... No, be-
0: of course not. But it is just, I, I just think that's an actual consequence of being absolved of a lot of the responsibilities of life yeah. as a young yeah, age. Yeah, for sure. And also anxiety is created by a feeling of incompetence. So anxiety increases based on how much you perceive the threat to be and the less capable you feel the bigger the threat appears so the more anxiety you'll have so pe- young people that don't have a lot of um activities or that aren't actually when you go out into the world then as an adult and you suddenly have all these responsibilities it's going to increase anxiety and the risk of depression because it's it it's a big problem then so if we've been if we haven't had to deal with that you're getting hit with everything at one time and it's okay, yeah. you know yeah, it remains to be seen if, I mean, the mental health crisis in young people—I I think about all the time—and about why so many people are so. When we're safer than we've ever been, we have more wealth. We're all middle class, you know, good news. But also, people are hanging on by a thread and terrified, and really, really suffering very deeply. And you have to wonder. I think you it's know, just
1: that. it's it's, it's the thing we've been talking about all along it's the fact that we Mm. we as beings are greater apes that are evolved to Mm. bloody live in a savannah for the most part and hunt our food and Mm. forage and get by day to day Mm. and form small tight social networks Mm. but in the modern day world we don't have to do any of that and we're constantly bombarded with information Mm. and yet we're expected to Know all sorts of things that there's no way we can actually know or comprehend because we've just read them, Mm -hmm. and we're expected to have these social statuses that we feel like we haven't earned. And it's 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 almost yeah. Yeah. I feel like I feel like it's almost a double edged sword because the Mm. the more developed we get as a world, and the more globalized we get as a world, the the better our healthcare I get. Hopefully, the less inequality Mm. there'll be, the more access to food and 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 just general. Social and life needs will be there, but then, how do people find their way? How do you? Yeah, it's it's a weird one, right?
0: It's such a big problem. And the philosopher Kierkegaard said there'll be some point in the future when we've solved so many problems that making people's lives harder will be the virtuous thing to do, <laughs> instead of making it easier. If we keep making it easier all the time, at some point, it's it's not going to be life anymore. We're not going to we're going to have no redemption because we're not going to do anything. We, w- we won't feel, we'll feel useless. And I think that's kind of where we're probably heading with this particular, you know, strand of reality <laughs> of our technological program. <laughs>
1: strand of reality is life a simulation. Getting very <laughs> good. <laughs> in,
0: this, in this narrative, in this, in this timeline. <laughs> and then it's Planet of the Apes after 100%. I hope you enjoyed that chat. I know I certainly did. It was an absolute hitter. If you like the deep, meaningful conversations and want to hear more, then click that follow button on Spotify or wherever you're listening and stay in touch. Follow me on Instagram, go to the website, sign up to the mailing list, get involved, baby. I want to hear from you. Let's get it. Bo.